Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke once more with the great Dr. Jordan Peterson. If you're not aware of Dr. Jordan Peterson, he's a professor of psychology, clinical psychologist, author of numerous very successful books, link in the description to those I'm sure, and also a controversial public figure because of his sort of, I don't know, conservatism, tradition, traditionalism, some would say classic liberalism, some would say neoconservatism. He's been in the public conversation for a long while. I connect with him very deeply when we talk about mythos, love and the complexity of trying to be a good person and navigate a a very difficult cultural space. Did you enjoy this episode, Django? Yeah, it felt more emotional and uh, free-flowing. Yeah. Free-flowing emotions. Is that what you like in life? Yeah, I guess so. so. Why don't you put that on your dating app? It sounds cliche. If someone said that, I'd be like, Ugh, what do you think you are? Some sort of spiritual hippie. All right, hold on. I'm free-flowing and emotional. I'd be Is like, that, that sounds ugh. like you're going to be moody and... Like you might cry. And have or later things. So what, what do you want to read? <laughs> what do you want to What do you want to read? You'll get to know me when you meet me. I'm a person. I live in a house. You'll get <laughs> yeah. to know me when you meet me. You're yeah. putting a lot of pressure on the photograph there, I probably there, will mate. ghost you. I'm sorry, because I find it hard to connect with pixels on a screen. <laughs> Actually, I'd probably find that somewhat intriguing. So, yeah, maybe go forth with that. I'm not on them anymore. You're going to end up alone. Now, <laughs> you, don't, you won't. I think you'll probably meet someone. I think maybe Soon? you'll be... Why don't you get Did with you a woman? Know? Get with a woman. Is that I what you want to do? I fancy someone at that party. Was it a woman? Yeah. I was like, oh, I actually am bisexual. That's good to know. Am I actually am bisexual? <laughs> yeah, you definitely are. Who do I fancy? All Huron and all them? Men, strong men. Strong men. Yeah. Who else again? Strong men. All strong men. <laughs> powerful strong men. Trump? Not business powerful, but you probably appreciate there. I appreciate you, but I don't fancy you. <laughs> strong, what type of strong men? More like caveman probably. Oh, or hairy. No. <laughs> Why did you think of hair? I thought more like... Because it's a caveman, it's not evolved. Yeah, but they've they, not they, lost they've their got hair yet. <laughs> not like they can build stuff. They're in a cave. And they've got like. Oh, yeah, I love that. They can build yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, that'd be nice. Yeah, I would like that. <laughs> fix things. Oh, please, yeah. We can, yeah a bit stronger them. than you. That annoys me, but I do like it. Yeah, but more intelligent, probably. No, they're not more intelligent. No, you, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's all right. Okay, oh, well, all right. Well, when, when can I meet him? <laughs> Let's listen to listener shout outs and Apple Podcast reviews. Listener shout outs. Joshua Games, dear Russell and Jenny, I can't tell you how much I look forward to Saturday mornings and a new Under the Skin episode. It's kept me totally sane throughout lockdown and pushed me to explore new ideas. Thank you, he shouts. All time faves for me are the original Adam Curtis episode. Well, that makes me feel we peaked too early. That's about 100 years <laughs> it's ago. It's episode two. It's episode two of the whole thing after Brad Evans. And then Ian McGilchrist, quite recent. So. Yeah, there you go. But it was a real long lull of about five years. <laughs> and then he's finally McGilchrist. McGilchrist was amazing. I want McGilchrist yeah. on again, Jim. Come on, let's get him on again. Okay. Book him in. Yeah. I know you don't do the booking, so I've struggled to think what you do do. Now, here's one from Dean Middleton. What a year it's been. Just wanted to say thank you for sharing your humour and insightful wisdom. Been enjoying your podcast. Great content and perception enhancing my ad. Please don't stop doing what you're doing. The world needs more voices like yours, Russell, and less like yours, Jen. I know you know, he didn't put that bit in. How do you know? Because I've written the <laughs> <laughs> tricky tricky hey listen you guys should listen to above the noise where you can meditate and learn how to deal with life better it's free you've already subscribed to luminary so why don't you add that to your arsenal if you don't have inner peace you're not going to get nowhere i'm telling you that now come see me live in hammersmith margate aylesbury ipswich jenny may finn might be there uh in 2022 which is now right so it's later this, mm. like oh, yeah, this month yeah go to russellbrand.com and uh, get tickets now, sign up to the mailing list as well. Some more communication, more content. You'll love it. And sign up to my YouTube channel. Now, let's get on with Dr. Jordan Peterson on Under the Skin. 
trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Jordan, thank you for joining me again on Under the Skin. Oh, thanks for the invitation. It's wonderful to see you. It's wonderful to be the first person you've spoken to today. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I played with my little grandson a little bit, and so that sort of counts, but... Yeah. You're more sophisticated than he is in some ways, at least. There, let's see if we can bring those few ways in which I'm more sophisticated than your grandchild to the forefront of my conduct. It's... Yeah, wouldn't that be good for me too? That would be good. <laughs> Jordan, the thing I suppose I've been thinking about most is given the manner in which you entered the public sphere as a kind of catalyst for and focal point of a collision between two movements a kind of resurgent conservatism an awareness of maleness and masculinity but also a kind of a target for the condemnation and ire of the social justice movement how do you feel now that some years have passed did you feel vindicated like that you were a harbinger uh, alerting people to sort of potential problems that were occurring with the academia that would become more widespread socially. Uh, you know, both that aspect of, that's one aspect of this question. And also, where do you think you may have erred and what do you think you may have done differently? And, and what would you say are positive aspects of the uh, argument that you are cast as being opposed to that you think you could take on board or you could be sympathetic towards? Hmm. You always ask such easy questions. So, okay, vindicated, no. It's a form of pride to be vindicated. I'm mostly grateful that I didn't get destroyed. Vindication, like this is way too big a problem. The problems that we've been discussing, for example, to be vindicated about anything like that, you know, and if you see any progress that you think is progress, then you pray that you're right about what progress constitutes. And, you know, you be grateful for whatever role you might played in that. And you hope that you're not too stupid in the future and that things continue on their hypothetically upward path so no i wouldn't say i feel vindicated you know i mean i'm grateful in some ways because one of the things i've observed although it's been painful to live through for my family and i is that the i what i would regard as the unwarranted attacks on me and what i've said have all was backfired if we waited long enough and if we were very careful with how we responded to them and a lot of that was as much as possible without unnecessary rancor and also listening as much as possible. Then you asked about mistakes. Yeah, I was thinking about that last week. Uh, I talked to Sam Harris again. We had a really good conversation. It was the best of the six conversations we've had, I think. And I, I do believe that both Sam and I regard our conversations as being exceptionally productive for us and hopefully for the people who we're inclined to watch and listen to them. But one of the things I really realized with Sam in particular was that, and this was probably an issue of something like vindication, is that I talked to Sam first just after <clears throat> all the political issues exploded around me and, and I started to become notorious or well-known, depending on your perspective. And I did feel more than I should have at that time that I was trying to prove something, you know, that I, I was trying to be right about something. 
And it was something important that we got bogged down in this discussion about truth, our first discussion. And I was very ill for that discussion. So I wasn't at my sharpest, that's for sure. And it was useful discussion, but it was awkward and it didn't flow well musically, you know, like a good conversation should, partly because I was trying to demonstrate that something I knew that I thought was important to people was true. And in this last conversation, I was able to revert more, I would say, to what I had learned as a clinician. And all I did really was ask Sam questions. And that was way better. And that's what I should always do. Is to, and that's, that's the best way to conduct a discussion, especially with someone with whom you hypothetically don't agree. Because the first thing you want to do is see if you actually don't agree, right? Because especially if the discussion is more deep philosophically, let's say, uh, if you could be pretentious enough to claim that, it's never obvious that the person who's using the terms you're using means the same thing by them, which is why Socrates said you in a philosophical discussion, you have to define your terms. And, you know, I found with Sam, certainly, as we both clarified what we meant by our respective terms, a lot of what appeared to be disagreement disappeared. And there were deep similarities in the way we thought and, and the reasons we thought the way we thought. And, and we were much more able to have a productive conversation that moved both of us forward, and which is the definition in some sense of a productive conversation, right? You come out of it transformed. So that was a mistake. And that was partly, well, partly my unfamiliarity with being so, so much part of the public eye, I suppose. And, um, and I suppose it kind of, immature excitedness about the potential of an intellectual victory, let's say on a large scale. And so, no, that's, that's been beaten out of me. I hope, uh, I hope, you know, and we should all hope that because it's not helpful. It's not helpful. I mean, I know there's, there's time for debate and, and there's time and place for victory if things are set up so that that's the goal, like in a formal debate debate, but it's not the best approach by any stretch of the imagination. And, listening and questioning is way more effective. So the presumed opposition between you and Harris, I suppose, would primarily, although not exclusively, be drawn along the lines of a kind of materialistic rationalism on his behalf. And my assumption would be a kind of openness to the archetypes found within mysticism that are deployed within psychology, particularly Jungian psychology, and how that relates potentially to a collective consciousness, unconsciousness, and a sort of a transcend transcendent and imminent realm about which, you know, I've chatted to Sam just one time and about which I would feel that he would largely be skeptical. But both you and he, I would imagine from people outside of um, that particular cultural enclave would regard you both as being representative of kind of potentially, this is like I'm guessing because it's not how I regard either of you especially, but as um, a dogmatic, intellectually rigorous, potentially conversationally aggressive men and i feel that possibly the way that you have been positioned have perhaps allowed yourself to be positioned it might be seen um, more generally as in opposition to the kind of postmodern, nominally at least and self-declared progressivism of intersectionality and identity politics i wonder that where you feel in that area in particular that you 
would pivot or at least adjust. For example, to give you some of my own feelings, because the stuff I love about you is your under, your deep understanding of clinical psychology, your understanding of myth, your ability to apply that culturally, your sympathy to the sort of uh, failings and yearning of young men in particular, but people more generally. And the areas that I find myself you know, almost defending you are around... Uh, uh, gender, uh, a kind of intransigence around identity, a kind of a robustness around linguistics and semantics and public protocols. Because say, I sort of feel like I can imagine a version of you when you become sort of, when you be, you're open-hearted, it's clear you're becoming more and more open-hearted. It seems like that in a kind of almost spiritual or religious sort of way. I wonder how you might approach those people that no doubt had a bit of an axe to grind. I'm speaking in particular of your, like the Helen Lewis conversation or the Channel 4 one. You know, when you come against people that clearly have a little bit of a takedown mentality, do you think yeah, it's that hard not to get defensive? Eh? Impossible. If really I think people to, well, don't, it's not impossible, but it's hard. It's really hard. And um, the Helen Lewis interview in particular, uh, I was sitting in the room that she was in with her photographers. Uh, there was a photography session first, and it was icy cold in there in a psychological sense, in that icy cold manner that you get when you walk into a room and you know that there's something underneath the carpet, you know, and I'm very sensitive to that sort of thing. And so I was like a cat with my hair up already. By the time the interview started, I was also extremely tired at the time. And so I was much more defensive than I could have been optimally. And so, and you know, that was partly also because in an interview like that, part of what's hoped for, I suppose, is that the person being so grilled will slip up in some, you know, remarkable manner that's instantly viral. And that redounds to the credit of the takedown artist and is like permanently, well, it's a permanent stain on the reputation of the person so affected. And so, you know, it's a very fine line to walk. Do, do you and think that that's hard to do it exactly right? Does that dynamic mean to you that you that you feel find it's impossible to yield or be sympathetic or be open or loving because I've, I've been in that situation well, it's harder for sure you know it's harder for sure to remember when you're being let's say attacked or when what the person assumes you think is being attacked and is projecting that on you it's much harder to love your enemy under such circumstances and you might even say well why should i even bother you know this person is is trying to take me down. And so, you know, why should I care for them? And the reason for that is, well, do you really want enemies? And do you really want people to suffer more than they have to, including the people who think they're opposed to you? And if you have any sense, the answer to that is definitely no. And, you know, that's part of that no vindication issue as well. So you don't want that. You, you want to have a conversation. You want to get past the ideology to the person. And I did object to her at one point, the GQ interview, and said, you know, I'd rather talk to you than to this devil of ideology that's possessing you because you would be much more interesting than all this predictable verbal, uh, what would you call it, puppetry that you're manifesting. And, you know, she, well, that didn't work. And unfortunately, and that's partly my fault, you know, but, but say la vie. I'm doing my best. But now that you're not, say now we're in a different situation where I, I suppose, am inviting comment in some of the areas that might have been covered in those more combative situations but i don't i hope bear those biases 
certainly in the same way. Do you feel that underlying these attacks is there is something valid, truthful, and real in in the people that have made those of claims? Absolutely, absolutely. What I mean, is it? Oh, there's all sorts. Let's talk about the left in general. You know, I mean, well, we all are part of identity groups. So the question about what role our group identity plays in our identity and what role respect for that should play in the polity at large, that's certainly something that's always open for discussion. I believe that the reason that free speech, for example, has to be the primary virtue, let's say, primary value is because free speech is indistinguishable from thought and thought is indistinguishable, especially thought done socially, which is more sophisticated thought because many brains are actually smarter than one. Plus we think in words. And so there's a huge social element to thought and we don't only think in words. And so thought is the literally the process by which consciousness makes adjustments to our presumptions. And so since we're all error prone, no matter who we are, because the future is different than the past, then if we don't make free speech and the role consciousness plays in using that to adjust our presuppositions central, we all stagnate and things fall apart. And that's ancient wisdom, as well as I would say, modern clinical wisdom. I mean, I just went down to Bucknell University and did a talk on free speech as a precondition for mental and social health. And I picked that title very carefully. And you know, one of the things that's quite striking about clinical practice in psychiatry and psychology, independent of the pure medical end, you know, the medication end, is that all the great clinicians, regardless of their school of thought, agreed that free speech accompanied by intense listening was psychologically and physiologically transformative. Well, okay, so what do you do about what do you do with, with a discovery like that, let's say? And I would say, well, if that's not a scientific discovery, it's very close to it. Depends on how scientific you think clinical practice is. And it's complex because it's, it's kind of like engineering in that it's a practical discipline. It's not pure science. But still, that agreement across schools of psychotherapeutic endeavor is striking. And it's meaningful. And it's much in accordance with how we understand the function of the brain and its evolution as well. Because we human beings are unique in that we produce abstracted representations of the world and our actions in the world. Those are stories, let's say, before we implement those in action. And so we can test out the utility and validity of the abstracted patterns and representations before we act them out and die because we're wrong. And so that's evolution. That's that's the taking of evolution to the next step. And I mean that technically, because the forces of selection operate at the level of abstraction for human beings. And you interfere with that when you interfere with free speech. And, you know, so let's give the devil his due. Well, what about words that hurt people's feelings? Isn't that bad? Well, yes, of course. Like who wants people's feelings hurt? But, but that's not a sophisticated argument because it doesn't take into account time frame. You know perfectly well that there are things you have to do right now that are difficult and, and challenging and, and even hurtful to yourself because of their stress that if you don't attend to will cause immense trouble and grief, not too much later. And we all know that all the time. And so the, the simple and unthinking compassion that drives statements like, well, don't be judgmental 
which is also something worth looking into in great depth, just is no, it's just nowhere near developed enough to, to be of practical utility. And it actually interferes with, with what's higher than that. So, you know, and, and I would say as well, clinically, that that was first observed in some sense by Freud with his emphasis on the catastrophic consequences of the Oedipal family, where the desire to protect based on compassion and also fear to some degree, fear particular on the mother's part of being alone, meant an all-embracing compassion that was so great that it interfered with the development of independence. And so that becomes well, pathological in its own right. And there's very little philosophical, there's very little observation on the radical compassionate left of the fact that compassion itself is by no means the only virtue or the highest virtue, virtue or that it doesn't have a devouring and pathological side, which it absolutely does. So, and that doesn't mean compassion is without merit. Obviously, it's, obviously it's, it has its merits but it has to be placed properly. It's interesting to reflect and consider how those pathologies may map onto a broader so or larger social scale, how that, that mm, devouring, fanged, enveloping anaconda compassion may bind us and wrap us up. I went to see the other day Philip Glass's opera um, on uh, Gandhi. I can't remember the name. It's something like Satyagara about like the truth power movement. And what I, I'm not, uh, I don't know much about opera. And when I was watching it, what I began to understand was that it was communicating with me in a kind of pre-linguistic manner. It wasn't saying, and then Gandhi did this, and then Gandhi went there, but unfortunately this happened to Gandhi. It was saying, this is the feeling of oppression. This is the appearance of heroism. This is the virtue of solidarity. This is what it is to stand up against oppression, be willing to sacrifice your own life. Be like it started to present these ideas, of course, musically. And uh, when you talk about uh, the, the power of language and the role of language in thought and the sort of difficulty of escaping the, the limitations of linguistic models when considering what they may represent, it's interesting to note the power of certain art forms to, or perhaps all art forms when done well, to bypass the limitations of, of linguistics. I wonder then how in, in conversations such as ours, we have recourse to a deeper truth. And I wonder more to, to your point about, you know, love thy enemy, where else it would have value, but when confronting that, look, I've been in sort of almost exactly the same situations as you, not as pronounced and particular, you know, but I have been a well-known person going into an interview, realizing, oh man, these people don't like me. They're going to try and hurt me and stitch me up. I've got a life. I've got a family. I want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to protect myself. I'm not going to be bullied. I'm clever. I'm going to use my mind now. I'm going to listen carefully. And like, you know, whether this is happening in a sort of a public media space or whether it's happening, you know, as a result of a quibble over a parking space, if these principles of ours are not applicable, if these are principles of Christianity are not applicable in my life today, then where are they applicable? And I suppose, you know, what I'm trying to elicit and 
summons here in our conversation is where can we, given that you perhaps more than anybody else represent fairly or unfairly a particular sort of moment and mindset, where where can these religious ideas be deployed to bring about a solution rather than articulating more beautifully the, the the position your existing position you know because we know what that is that's just a fortification an ongoing fortification and like you know there's no way that i would sort of say why don't you yield to stuff that you think is wrong so you know like but what i'm saying instead is where where is it where's the solution where antithesis thesis synthesis where's the synthesis going to come from or are we just going to be in these ossified shrieking shrill positions uh, across the battle lines for eternity because i don't think i can stand it i want to be able to talk to people i want to move forwards you know what, what are okay, we so going to do i'm going to tie together three three questions i think so you talked about harris earlier hopefully i can keep my track of thought across all this sam definitely has come to realize that there is a domain of experience outside propositional logic and language that is uh, revivifying and he's come to that conclusion by practicing meditation and also as far as I can tell because of his experience with psychedelics and so although he takes a strong stance against formalized religion and that's because he equates that with the ossified cognition that you described and he also equates that directly with the totalitarian impulse which I think is a conceptual error because the totalitarian impulse is deeper than that merely which affects our religious structures. Well, obviously it manifested itself in communism and Nazism, for example. So, but he does, I would say he conflates those two. And that's perhaps, I would say, if I may, that there's an unexamined animus there. He's angry with the religious types for some reason that's interfering with his ability to delineate the problem more, more, completely. And that's something I hope that him and I would accomplish if we continue to talk, which we are planning to do. So there's that. Now, then you talked about the opera. And so, well, art does operate outside the linguistic realm. And it's a mistake to presume that all of human wisdom and all of what constitutes consciousness can be or has been propositionalized and made linguistic. And linguistic representations tend towards their own fortification, which is the danger of conservatism, let's say. And so there has to be, we have to immerse ourselves in the domain that's outside of language to revivify, revivify what language represents and also to keep us healthy and functioning and to keep our polit politics and our social structures healthy and functioning. And so art points the way to that and that's why it moves us deeply moves us what does that mean well it moves us from one set of presuppositions to another that's what that movement is and from a jungian perspective you you would say that art elicits a manifestation of the self which is the central identity that transcends all proximal and changeable identities so it's the deepest level of identity and it's worshiped by all religious struct societies if to the degree that they're motivated by the genuine religious impulse and you might say well you know and you might say this is an area where sam and i would disagree and i would say yes and no to that because it's not so obvious there is a, technically you can speak of what is religious as that which moves us most deeply you think about that as a definition now, what that means about God or the structure of reality, well, I don't know, and neither does anyone else. And, and there's all sorts of speculation on that. And uh, 
you know, are our intuitions, are our deepest intuitions of meaning reliable guidelines to the structure of reality? Well, we better, we hope so, because otherwise we're flawed at a level that's so deep, we have no hope of ever repairing it, right? If our fundament, most fundamental instincts, like the instinct to admire and the instinct to experience beauty and the instinct to imitate, which is the fundamental essence of worship, if all of that is misbegotten, well, we, we're misbegotten. We're, we're not going to be able to fix that rationally because it's so deeply embedded inside of us. But I'm more optimistic. I believe that, well, I believe that, uh, <laughs> I could put it this way, that we evolved to adapt to reality itself and that we're not flawed deeply in that sort of manner, even though we're imperfect and incomplete. And so, and then in conversation, because you asked the third question, which is, well, how, how is this put into practice practically? And I would say that the depth of meaning of a conversation and the degree to which you're engaged in some sense, even despite yourself, or the degree to which you forget about time and place, that's an index of the value and, and utility of the conversation. And the more that's happening, the more both of you in the conversation are outside this, the prison-like structures of your own presuppositions. And so you delight in that, you play in that. And I mean, it can be overwhelming in and of itself. And, and that's a danger. How much, you know, that's the burning bush problem. It's like, well, yeah, it's God, but how close do you really want to get? You know, you're just you and you'll get consumed by the fire if you're not careful. And so, you know, we have to handle that with care too. And that's one of the dangers of psychedelics as well. Yeah. So hopefully I answered that question. You answered loads of things. I haven't listened to your most recent uh, conversation with Sam Harris yet. I will do. I heard the first one, but I did listen and I feel like I maybe tagged this one of the other times we chatted that when you were talking to Stephen Fry, another notorious famous atheist in the and, and in your conversation with him, you'll remember that primarily you were addressing that he has this sort of powerful connection to myth, narrative, storytelling and the themes that are usually evoked and are the function indeed of those myths. And my favorite bit in the conversation was when he sort of said like when he sort of addressed his fundamental atheism he's sort of the denouncing of a potential otherness or ulterior space such as you said was encountered or began to become uh, accepted in your discourse with Harris around the subject of meditation which you know I, I, I meditate a lot and like neurologically I can appreciate that as opening up pathways and spaces that may otherwise not be occupied and, and that would map onto conversation in the way that you said that once you break through the prison of your prejudices you're accessing literally new terrain and territory the bit in your conversation with fry where he said like he said something about like you know giving himself a hard time for not being better and you said who is that giving you a hard time what are you aspiring to and my sense was that you were sort of appealing to a c.s lewis like uh, definition of an imminent kind of uh, god within and it's um uh, it, the inferred uh, moral code that's suggested by that now, when you talked about yes. uh, when you talked about that um, sort of imitative component of worship, I felt uh, that I wanted to mention the uh, uh, beyond imitation, combine, and un the unitative component of worship. That, speaking for myself, that what I want from worship is to transcend my rather robust and intricate egoic self in favor of a sort of Yahweh experience of reality, be albeit a personal one. Now, having sort of laid out these sort of um, interpersonal um, points of access to divinity, what is their value 
if it doesn't in the in the marketplace in the interview lead to us dealing with other people that are same you know because Say we're dealing with someone that's like, I've been like, man, I've had people poking their finger in my face. I've had people screaming at me. I've dealt with this stuff. And I want to get to the point where I say, you are in pain like I'm in pain. You are suffering like I've suffered. You may have different mm. inflections and your pain may be, as we are currently discussing, underwritten using a cultural lexicon that it prohibits me sharing in that pain with you explicitly because I am a white man, for example. But, I want us to find this place of unity. I want I want to love I can tell. you. <laughs> no, really, really, I really I can tell that. I can tell that. So how do your we questions. How do we by do the it, way Jordan? you conduct yourself? Thank you. Thank you. How do we well, do it? Well, the first thing I, the first thing I would say is that there's no difference between monotheism and social unity. Okay, this is something that needs to be understood explicitly. And I'm not speaking in a religious manner, although maybe, you know, I may be, but but it doesn't need to be that, is that the movement towards monotheism that united, let's say, disparate tribes in our ancestral history is the same as the bringing together of those tribes' view of the world under a single rubric, and that is the same as peace, right? Out of many, one. Constant human problem, constant existential problem. Well, you might say, well, I don't need to worship the one it's like okay well then you're disunified you're a tower of babel within well why is that so bad well because you suffer from anxiety and hopelessness as a consequence and i i can make a technical argument for why that's true at a neurophysiological level so disunion within is extremely costly psychophysiologically because you want to go in many directions at once or none because you're so overwhelmed by the possibility or the nihilism let's say if you're doubtful that that in itself swamps you. And, you know, then it's misery and pain. And you might say, so what? Well, it's misery and pain, and then you die faster. Plus, you're miserable and bitter. And so not so what? So everything. Right. And so the monotheism issue is crucial. It's absolutely crucial. What's at the highest point? What's the gold cap on the pyramid or the aluminum tip on the Washington Monument? It was aluminum because that was the most costly metal at the point at the time. And so we've been trying to figure out since the time of Egyptians, what should be at the top of the sacred pyramid? And then you think about what the Egyptians did to try to figure that out. They built those damn pyramids. That was hard. So this is an eternal problem and it's never going to go away. And, and we're all participating in it. Well, so to some degree, the argument I've made, and this is partly why I've been less than satisfied by the arguments of the atheist materialists is that there are pieces of evidence, and Sam agrees with this because he agrees that what happens to him and, and other people who have practiced meditation is something that could be described as revivifying immersement in the sacred. Now, he distinguishes that from the religious, which he conflates with the totalitarian impulse. And, you know, fair enough. You, know, you can see why people would do that, but it's, it's actually not that helpful, partly because we need to take whatever that sacred cap is and also particularize it into actionable, into action and, and into units of perception. It has to be concretized and cast in stone to some degree for it to be useful. The problem with that is that ossifies, right? Because, because the future is different than the past. You cannot rely on the past as an unerring guide, even though you have to rely on the past even to see 
So, but we need to think of this as an existential problem, as a chronic existential problem. That's the problem in Jungian parlance, let's say, of the tyrannical father. And we all feel guilt about that too, by the way. And this is something that you see emerging politically on the left all the time. Is you're privileged. The blood you, the ground you walk on is saturated with blood. Why do you deserve to be elevated among others when it's merely an arbitrary consequence of your birth? It's like everyone feels that. Everyone. And the lefties, to the degree that they're driven by the desire for truth, let's say, and not by the desire to forward a particular kind of ideological, self-righteous ideological possession, which also occurs on the right just, just as much, that, 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 that protest is the manifestation of a genuine, it's, it's like a manifestation of original sin. Yes, the ground that we all walk on is soaked with blood. All of us, we labor under that terrible sin. You think, well, there's no such thing as original sin. It's like, yeah, sure, you could say that, but try escaping from it. Just see if you can. Well, how do you escape from it? In reality, you be a good person. You be the best person you can, because the ground you walk on is soaked with the blood that was sacrificed to give you what you have. Now, JP, this idea, that's beautifully put, thank you. This idea uh, that monotheism is an, apex ideology might be challenged by its historical correlative with uh, post-agricultural settler societies versus nomadic. No, it's way older than that. It's way, way older than that. It's way back into the shamanic tradition. It's way Monotheism. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the necessity of union. And even in polytheistic societies, there, there was... There was a war between the gods in polytheistic societies in imagination and the emergence of something at the apex. And the reason for that is that, well, it's the problem of unity. Like each god, in some sense, is emblematic of a particular kind of value, embodied value, and they yes. all conflict. Yes. What, so what's, what unites them? It's like what ring brings them all together? Well, on the malevolent end in the Lord of the Rings, but it's the problem of unity. And to, to attribute that to agricultural societies is... Well, first of all, I think that the people who are doing that have an ideological reason for doing so, and that colors their scholarship. But I also don't think they know anything about the shamanic tradition, which is unbelievably ancient. Yes, and the shamanic uh, tradition, curiously, was what I wanted to inquire into with you after. But I reckon that regardless of what the co-committant causes of... Uh, the success, shall we say, uh, the dominant, shall we say, of monotheism and settler societies. It well, well, let me let me comment about that just for one more second. Of course. Look, once agricultural agriculture emerges, the possibility of much larger societies emerges, and so the problem of unity becomes even more paramount, and the necessity to implement a more uh, structured and explicit solution becomes paramount as well. So there's some truth in that supposition, but but the, it goes too far when it says, well, that's the reason for the emergence of monotheism. It's like, no, no, that's not true. Although the problem of unification becomes extremely much more difficult as you try to unify more things under the same rubric. Yes, not necessarily so. emergence, but perhaps triumph. And of course, perhaps you sense where I'm heading is to the challenge of, you know, like the, the sort of potential correlative between ideas of oneness, a universal truth and homogeneity and hegemony. The 
I've mm-hmm. heard sort that's of, the danger, right? That's certainly part of the danger. So how do you how do you preserve diversity, necessary diversity, while simultaneously maintaining unity? Yes, right? and do you this see- is an unbelievably complicated. It's like music. Music solves that problem, right? That's why we love it so much. It's like there's there are all those notes harmoniously unified in multiple layers, simultaneously making a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. Right? It speaks of that capacity to unify the greatest diversity and you see within music especially great music the introduction of novel forms of dissonance that in some sense even break the rules and the capacity to arrange that into an even higher harmony that includes that dissonance well that's when you that's when you hear music that strikes you at the level of the masterpiece and that is the solution in art to the problem of diversity within unity and we experience that deeply and in an embodied form and and we worship that if we love music which all of us do Almost all of us do. And this sense of resonance and connection with these uh, uh, rare, uh, and if not esoteric, certainly uh, refined and sublime pieces of art is an indication of some truth being achieved, some bell ringing, some note being struck. But uh, music is, it's certainly in some regard, an abstract art form. And I mean abstract in so much as you can't sort of take a symphony and use it to create a political... It's not propositionalized. It's right? not propositionalized. Yeah. So, so... I don't think it's abstract exactly. I think it's the most representative art because I think, yeah. the world is composed of patterns. The things we see as objects are patterns. I recognize. So, so yeah, so music speaks of the harmonious multiple level interweaving of the patterns of reality itself and when you dance to it and when you find yourself move moving to it you're inserting yourself in an embodied manner into that abstracted representation of this harmonious diversity of patterns and so it's the highest of religious practice i would say in some sense certainly then there is a realm within the many realms of our conscious experience where we can appreciate this unity and the ability of the unit of experience to incorporate complexity and what kind of unit of experience would it be if it could not then how do we into this monotheistic space which we have already conceded can create ossified and homogenized spaces which seems to align nicely with the argument that are made that is made by the people that oppose you it's uh, you know the patriarchy it's the system there's no room for diversity our voice ain't heard the ground is soaked in blood all of these arguments appear to be true. reaching for this place where we can that we can reach spiritually if not in abstract terms then certainly in terms that are not entirely pragmatic in terms of how you might organize a society or propositional to use a word i'm just learning now um so how i wonder in the 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 ongoing discourse might there be a sense of yielding and open-heartedness to these challenges that, that are continually represented by the people I'll loosely term as your opponent, that we get a sense that there is a, a movement, an incorporation of these currently opposing but ultimately unifiable components of this ongoing conversation? Well, I was just talking with Muhammad Akil about the totalitarian impulse in Islam, let's say, and, and one of the things he said was that, you know, beware of the impulse to punish. And so when you see within an ideological movement, re- regardless of its, of its merits, let's say, on an existential basis, because we all suffer from the problem of the tyrannical father, right? That's an existential problem. 
writ large. And that's the tendency of human structures to ossify with time. And that problem that was recognized thousands and thousands of years ago by the ancient Egyptians, for example, and by all the cultures that had an emphasis on the renewal of the cosmos at the new year, because that was part of the attempt to dispense with the old and archaic and tyrannical, and to introduce the novel and the and the sacred and the revivifying. And so it's a common human concern. Um, part of it, I think, in the modern world will require a certain increase in psychological sophistication because there is the tyrannical father, but there's always also the protective and encouraging father, right? And, and that's an e equally paramount reality. And unless your political position, let's say, or your spiritual position is broad enough to incorporate both of those opposites, which is very difficult, right? Because they are opposites. And then, then you're going to be one-sided and, and the consequence of that is going to be, that's going to be hard on you because you're going to be resentful and bit, bitter as a victim of the patriarchal tyrant. And maybe you were, you know, you could well have been. Many of the atheist types that I've spoken to have been very hurt by religious fundamentalists at some point in their life. And, and maybe when they were very young and that's still deeply embedded within them that, and it's, it's real, it's absolutely real. And so, and then on the feminine side, well, there's the, the compassionate mother, you know, and that's put forward really as the primary archetype of our time in some ways, especially on the radical left. But there's also the devouring mother and watch out for her, man. You think that patriarchal tyrant's a problem. You, that's, he at least protects you sometimes from the devouring mother. She, you're an infant forever with her. And there's nothing uglier than a 40-year-old infant. So... So, you know, that's partly why I was attracted to Jung and his emphasis on universal archetypes once I started to understand what that meant. And what Jung was looking at was the grammar of the narratives through which we view the world. And that's something to concentrate on for a second. I became very convinced as an empirical scientist when I was doing psychological research that we literally perceive the world through a narrative structure of value, which means it's primary to a object perception itself. And so, and so let me detour a couple of places on that. So the discovery of this, the discovery of the necessity of this emerged in multiple disciplines simultaneously in the early 60s. It, it emerged in AI when AI researchers found out that when they were trying to make machines that could see the world the and act, the problem wasn't action, the problem was seeing the world. Because they just assumed that, well, there, there's those objects, you can just see them. It's like, no, because everything is infinitely complex in, in some literal sense. Because even if the thing itself isn't infinitely complex because it's finite, the number of combinations of ways that you could see the thing, especially in relationship to everything else, is so close to infinite that the difference doesn't matter. So how do we do it? And the answer is, well... It has something to do with embodiment, which is what Rodney Brooks, who invented the Roomba, by the way, an MIT cognitive scientist, really started to formalize in the early 90s. You have to be embodied. More than that, you have to impose the structure of value on the world before you can perceive it. More than that, that's wired into our nervous system. So we do not see the objective world, think about what it is, evaluate it and act. The evaluation is built into the perception because otherwise it's too slow. And then I realized, partly from reading Jung, but also partly from reading neuropsychologists, was that the structure that we looked at the world through was a narrative. And that's because we need to act. And a narrative is about action. It's also about perception, but only insofar as perception guides action. So we literally see the world through a story. And then I wondered, 
Well, if we see the world through the story, through a story, and we evolved as adapted creatures in the world, and we see the world as a story, what does that mean about the world? And so when I ask people questions like, well, what do you mean by real? That's what's at the bottom of it is like, we look at the world through a story. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it isn't obvious what it means. And, and now, the problem of multiple interpretations is one of the things that drove postmodernism, because the postmodern literary critics realized at one point that there's literally an indefinite number of interpretations of a text. Okay, so how do we come up with an interpretation that's canonical? Oh, power. It's all a consequence of our drive for power. Well, no, it's not. Some of it is, and hopefully not the best part, but you can easily reduce literature to power claim. You know, and, that, and that's another, what would you say, example of unconscious uh, recognition of the tyrannical father. It's like, well, it's all power. No, some of it is power, and we should pay attention to it, because look what happens when power goes astray. And so no wonder the left is, you know, leery in some sense of, of traditional authority. Yeah, but, well, we've seen what the left can do in its untrammeled condition as well in the 20th century in all sorts of ways. So the totalitarian impulse, that tyrannical father, is so deep that it's there everywhere. It's there in your psyche. It's there in your, in your personal pathology. It's there in religion. It's there in politics. It's everywhere. The terrible dead hand of bloody history is everywhere. And it's an existential problem. Part of what I was reaching for in my reference to uh, the opera there was my ability to personally receive information in a non-linear, non-linguistic, or at least a verbally linguistic fashion. Um, and what I am trying, to, what I am understanding and what I'm feeling is that in some sense, this um, acknowledgement of a uh, set of archetypes to which we all have access and beyond the archetypes of the objective archetypes, structural archetypes and patterns to which we have a, a predetermined, uh, we, we are in affinity. affinity and we are in some symbiosis with, it makes me feel if it means anything at all that in in all likelihood that consciousness is a precondition for all reality a necessary component for the universe and the process of evolution is one of the receptor becoming more, more becoming able to access realms of consciousness that were ubiquitous universal and continually present beyond the box of space and time but as the machine evolved it gains access the psychedelic experience seems to be representative or at least seems to um demonstrate to some degree this idea and like even in william james's analysis there are realms of uh, reality and consciousness separated by the thinnest of veils that we can access and the whole point of the shamanic traditional part of the point the idea of the disease the disembodiment the the decapitation the and death. The, the death and the re emergence and the ability to transcend and you know to sure, that's a resurrection that's a death and, and descend and descend yes 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 and this figure of you know moses going up to the higher level of the mountain top he's in his relationship with the serpent his relationship with the burning bush he's re receiving this information and with water because he's yeah, a master right. of the water that dissolves stone cool so you would see that in like in terms of unconsciousness and a pathway through the unconsciousness like like i see this yeah, that's the pathway through the desert and that's the self in union terms guiding the personality from one egotistical mode into another right because there has to be something underneath 
your transformations that allows you to maintain some identity while you transform. And that's the self that Jung talked about. And he identified that with Christ symbolically. And that's because Christ is an emblem of death and resurrection and, and also of what feeds you in the desert, you know, symbolically speaking. And that's associated with the idea of the symbolic word that was there at the beginning of a time that call, called the spirit out of matter. And all of that's all tied together some remarkable manner yes, yes way yes. down deep there <laughs> it's real real beautiful in there it makes me feel sometimes when we uh, are dealing with however loosely uh, with this matter that I, I would i wonder how we can use it to address what i feel is a misanthropy that is at the core of many of our imposed systems, uh, both mm -hmm. economic and Yeah, political. well, the enemy you have to love is yourself. That's really hard. That's partly why you practice loving your enemies. You don't think you're your own worst enemy? You haven't thought about it very much then. Have you ever been judged by anyone as harshly as you judge yourself? Has you ever, have you ever hated anyone as intensely as you hate yourself? Have you ever been disappointed by anyone as much as you've been disappointed by yourself? So how do you forgive that? Come to terms with that. You know, so to love your enemy, that's to want the best for the horrible, misshapen creature that happens to be you. God, you know, who can manage that? And who doesn't think from time to time that it would be just better if something as awful as me just ceased to exist? And so we all struggle with that. It's a non-trivial problem. It is the problem of evil and ignorance and all rolled into one. Stiff-neckedness and all of that. Lack of faith terror oh. when the media representatives of some of the ideas that we've discussed social justice say um are confronting confronting you or confronted by you and they cast you in this sort of role of this tyrannical father i think um do you see or feel that there would be a value in exposing the level of vulnerability that you seem to have gained greater access to even in the short time that we have known one another? Do you feel it's appropriate? Do you feel that there is in this vulnerability, in, in, there is solution? It doesn't matter because it just happens. Like, I, you know, it's, I'm so emotional now. I've been emotional my whole life, really, but it's much more marked now. And it's partly a consequence of ill health and, and you know, continual, like, high level trauma for a multi-year period and so um is it useful i mean I, I don't know it's just it seems inevitable and so it it happens of its own accord in some sense and i'm not particularly willing to in, attempt to what uh, stymie it yeah and, why know, should you we're, we're talking about things that are way down at the bottom of of everything and so it's not obvious that emotion is inappropriate. Now, I try not to be dramatic. I'm trying to try not to act. I don't want to be a puppet who acts. That's for sure. It's too dangerous. By It's way too dangerous when wandering through territory of this sort to, when? to be dramatic for, 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 let's say, for the purposes of manipulation or anything like that. Um, people seem to respond with a certain degree of, of compassion and acceptance to my emotional outbursts. And I thank them for that. And, it's interesting that your grandchild has come uh, during or or during and sort of after this period of crisis, which when like I sort of spoke to you and like in describing it, you and uh, Michaela ascribed it pr uh, pr primarily to sort of you know, sort of 
chemical and like all sorts of rational and I'm sure true stuff. Given your perspective more uh, generally and your inclination towards Jungian analysis, did you see it as a trial and did you relate it to the sort of public sp the space that you'd been occupying? Some, you... Somewhat. I mean, it, you know, uh, I've, there's a very pronounced streak both of autoimmune difficulty and depression in my family, autoimmune issues, mostly on my mother's side and also on Tammy's uh, mother's side and depression on my father's side, which has terribly afflicted a very large number of my male relatives, particularly of my dad's line, like terribly. Affected. And so I've had that proclivity ever since I was a teenager. And this latest illness was definitely a manifestation of that among, and also was exacerbated by social stress, I would say, to a large degree, and but also by the revelation of vulnerability on the part of so many people to me, which was very um, weighty, let's say, and, and also conferred upon me a responsibility in some sense that, well, especially when I was ill, wasn't, it wasn't obvious how I could possibly manage it, you know, with any degree of success. And it's a mystery to some degree because I'm much better than I was and it isn't obvious why. And I'm anxious about things that I wouldn't think I would need to be anxious about. Well, not being anxious at all about things that are, you know, large scale and truly difficult. There's a real element of randomness to it. And, you know, we are all subject to randomness to some degree, right? You know, things happen and, and, and our best laid plans go astray and, and we all die. We're all vulnerable. We all die. You know, we're all failures in the final analysis in that regard. And so that manifests itself in everyone's life. And you hope that it isn't too much and that you get through it and you don't damage too many people while you're sick yourself. So, and I'm hoping, you know, I did my first public lecture this week in three years and it went pretty well. And I'm going to Cambridge and I invited you and I'd like to talk, I'm going to talk there about imitation of the divine ideal. And so it's an extension of the sorts of things that we've been talking about. And so, and hypothetically, you know, we're going to talk publicly, not on Zoom like this at some point and, and continue to get to the bottom of things. But I'm, I'm very excited to go to Cambridge and Oxford to do this, but it's also extraordinarily daunting. You know, so, well, it's the Divinity School at Cambridge that invited me. There was a huge battle there about free speech that's affecting, going to affect likely the legal structure of your whole country. And there's a lot of expectations around the visit, plus the things I'm planning to discuss. They're hard to discuss. They're, they're like the talk I gave down at Bucknell. It went very well, but it was the deepest talk that I could possibly manage. And that, that requires some effort, you know, it's, we tend to touch deep things at our peril and, and we tend not to, and we shouldn't often because, you know, do you really want to mess about with the substructure of things? How often do you want to do that? That's a burning bush problem. And so, well, how all that's tied in with my illness isn't obvious, and, but, you know, lots of things aren't obvious. I know what helped me so much was the love of my family and the support of my friends and, and also the broader support of the people who had been listening to what I'd been saying on YouTube, because we got lots of messages and prayers, which were at least when you receive a message that says that someone's praying for you, you know, that, you know, regardless of its metaphysical effect or lack thereof, 
it's something to see that when people are honestly doing it, you know, they're devoting a part of their, of their attention to your trouble. And that indicates that they value your endeavor in a very practical way because attention is expensive. And to know while you're going through something terrible that there are people who genuinely support you is one of the things that can sustain you through such an awful ordeal. And love, you know, that's, that's, that's nourishing in a very fundamental sense. It does feel dangerous to touch these substructures, speaking, obviously, as an individual, less obviously, I bloody hope, as an individual with mental health troubles, knowing how my personal instability at periods of growth, at the points that might be marked by initiation, how that I descended in those times into ashes and addiction, how I learned and lost during those times. I feel now at this point in my life as a father as a adult as a man more optimistic i i about change about the possibility for change i feel that there is a possibility for synthesis i believe that there is a possibility i feel that we are as people often do and people generally do and god i've read enough sort of pieces from history where that sort of demonstrate that people always you know this whole fin de siècle we are the generation type vanity that falls upon us all but nevertheless from both an ecological perspective and from an uh, economic inequality perspective and just the general technological right it just feels like there's yeah. this fraught sense anyway but i I agree with that, by the way, and especially I think that's particularly evident on the technological front, because in 20 years, we could be completely surrounded by objects that are intelligent, just to take one single example. Yes. I mean, things are exploding on the, on the computational front at such a rate that we can't even imagine it. And, while they, and that's going to happen faster and faster. While all these objects are by their nature novel, they are, in my opinion, expressions of a pretty consistent uh, ideological format an economic one at that when you look at the way that the internet has um the, the way that it, the space there has been colonized the way that surveillance has exploded there the way that these the, indeed some of the arguments we've touched upon around censorship surveillance and control my i have a strong feeling that centralized institutions such as state government and the, in particular the relationship between state governments and corporations might be an area for emergent populism of either the right or left my personal preference would be the left and i mean that only in terms of the way the left would be informed by christianity well, you see i would say you see that a bit on more what's probably the right in in phenomena like bitcoin mm-hmm Right. And, and it is also driven by a deep skepticism about the uh, omniscience of centralized authority and the Bitcoin types. They really want to take value itself out of the hands of institutions and radically decentralize it. It's an unbelievably radical idea. And, yes. And Bitcoin keeps going up in value. It's been a pretty steady uphill climb for a very long time now. Um, I think there's no... There's only one day over any four-year period since Bitcoin emerged where it wasn't worth either four or five times as much as it was four years previously. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, hmm, is right. Now, who knows? You know, it just might explode in our faces. I know the governor of your bank, the Bank of England, warned about that this week. But, you know, well, you know, you can take that for what it's worth and maybe yeah. it's worth a lot. Who knows? But. But yeah, this and but part of it is also, I think, an understanding on the part of people at a deep level that 
centralized authority actually doesn't have the computational resources to solve the problem of the future. No. None of us is smart enough to. Yeah, yeah. So we have to we have to think computationally in some sense. How do we distribute our systems to obtain a kind of maximal diversity in problem solving so that we can select from the broadest possible array of solutions to the problems that are going to beset us? And I think all of that's dependent on something like free speech. And I think, yes, to, 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 yes, I completely agree. Uh, but I, I sense that people are beginning to suspect that the intransigence of the powerful is not out of a kind of a benign paternal impulse to protect us, but out of a, a tyrannical controlling impulse that the primary function of systems is their own preservation and to increase control where possible. You could One could argue that over the course of this pandemic, we've seen um, opportunistic mm -hmm, mm -hmm. attitudes around regulation and legislation, which have been curiously, astonishingly to me, much more taken up by what you would call the right than the left. And this is sort of part of my own sort of ongoing sort of um, uncanny, icky horror uh, or what's unfolding and how, where these arguments are available and where these voices are being heard from. But uh, the reason I mentioned populism because I, is because I sense that there is a requirement for a new, uh, a new political force that incorporates, in fact, much of what interests you when you get to the heart of the matter, when you're talking about the complexity of music. And I feel that these ideas can no longer be mapped onto centralised state authority with its pre-existing relationships with global corporate and media, which are still corporate structures, and that there is a requirement for something quite radical and i don't know where well, it's going to emerge from i think a lot of that from. is emerging that some of that is emerging of its own accord you know because with this increase in technological power i mean every single person on the planet above a certain minimum level of economic uh what would you say access has the entire resources of a television station at their hands now now, just to take a single example, I mean, individuals are becoming unbelievably powerful in their ability to move things, which also means that we have to be better individuals because, you know, that's a good thing in many ways, but it's also a very dangerous thing. And it was something that Jung warned of in, in great detail in the 1950s with the rise of the hydrogen bomb. He knew that while more and more hands, more and more power was truly being placed in the hands of individuals. And, you know, I know that there are still structural impediments to that, and there always will be in some sense, but but that doesn't change the underlying reality of the fact that, well, look at what we have available to us. I mean, more computational power sitting on our desktops than drove the entire voyage to the moon by a huge margin, way more in your phone than that. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, for me, like I sort of cut that problem off at its knees, I would say in some sense, psychologically, because when I was studying totalitarianism from 1985 to 1999, say, I came to the conclusion that the proper move forward at the deepest possible level was the concentration on the development of the individual. Mm -hmm. Make, you know, you facilitate and encourage the development of the individual, and then you hope that the problem solving mechanisms that all those individuals represent are operating you know, in the least resentful and bitter and malevolent possible manner and are also convinced of their own value and utility and willing to develop that capacity. Cer so certainly so particular, that's my, my I, I think goal. I, I recognize the validity of that route. And, and uh, but I feel that the, 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 all of these burgeoning individual minds, all of these individual uh, in, journeys to enlightenment are somewhat curtailed, managed, controlled and directed towards 
solutions and outcomes that benefit pre-existing structures but it's very difficult for those ideas to yeah, well that's to part flourish. of the credo problem right and that's part of the that's the matthew principle and christ said that you know um to those who have everything more will be given and from those who have nothing everything will be taken away and that's an economic principle and of course it's the case that once you have power and influence it's much easier to gain more and so and that's an eternal problem and that's part of the problem in some sense of the tyrannical father and it's an extraordinarily deep problem and one of the ways the left errs is they they conflate that with capitalism it's like no you don't understand this is a way deeper problem than mere capitalism and so you try to solve the problem of unequal distribution by adjusting capitalism it's like well it's the same problem emerged under communism mm -hmm. everywhere. Well, why? Well, because it's an actual problem. And so, and we don't really know how to manage it. No. So, no. What is so it? we struggle with that continually. You what? know, partly what we do is we try to eliminate arbitrary barriers to individual progress. So that's equality of opportunity. And the left objects, the radical left. Well, what about equality of outcome? Well, <laughs> How does that jive with diversity? If everyone's the same, where, where's diversity? Yeah. Well, I, they're not the same in every way. Okay. Exactly how are they allowed to be different then? Yeah. Exactly I, how? And who decides? This is a real problem. This is part of the reason that the holy trinity of diversity, inclusivity, and equity bothers me so much. It's like because it is a holy trinity and it's not the right holy trinity. I can and by that I mean it can't unify in the manner that a trinity needs to and and there's no unification of the trinity into a superordinate principle although you might argue that it's compassion and if it is that's insufficient because compassion without judgment is tyrannical devouring so this is a huge problem and, and it can't be dealt with casually yes i recognize this and i see how it, it is further engendering oppositionism i see that it's not creating a, uh, it's not commensurate with harmonious outcomes and i actually don't think it's we're not directing our attention at the source of the problem well i was talking to a sort of an economist called anwar shaikh and i you know he's an economist so he was pretty uncomfortable with the line of my question is that i kept saying what is the psychological energy that undergirds capitalism what psychological force is it what humor what right, hue right. where does it come right, from exactly. is it greed yeah. is it avarice? that's why I went, where is it that's why i went into psychology and not and not political science when when I when I switched my my educational path for exactly that reason. Do you, Jordan, see Jung as a kind of mystic or prophet? Yes, mm. but also as a as a hard nosed empiricist. I mean, he was a remarkable person. He had a remarkable mythological imagination, like J.K. Rowling. You know, I mean, there are people like that, people like that pop up from now, now and then who have more access to that dream space than than anyone else and who are simultaneously able to articulate the structure of that dream space. And Freud was one of those, but Jung, he was, he was, you know, he's a modern shaman, mm. yeah. unbelievably educated, unbelievably intelligent, unbelievably broad. I've never encountered a thinker like him. Where do you, you know, and he's terrifying. Where do you think and what aspects of his work do you think are most useful in rather than providing analysis, guiding us towards solutions for some of the problems well, I of think, division. Well, I think practically speaking, his discovery, let's say, that 
the hero myth is a fundamental human story that's revolutionary and it's and, and his, his attempt to associate that with something so deep that it might as well be described as instinct it is it's the instinct to imitate it's the narrative consequence of the instinct to imitate and we're unbelievably imitative and that's not rational it's something that drives rationality itself so and and he put his finger on that jung answered questions that people weren't even asking now that's the mark of a true genius it's like what's he talking about well you don't even get the question let alone the answer you know so yeah well he was looking for the source of value fundamentally the the source of ultimate value what does it mean for there to be value answering nietzsche's question nietzsche said that partly because of the european european contact with multiple uh, peoples and multiple belief systems the problem didn't become what belief is correct the problem became the problem of belief itself and Nietzsche said, well, we'd have to create our, our own values. And then Freud came along and said, well, wait, we can't because we have an unconscious structure. And Jung came along and said, yeah, we have to derive our values from those pre-existing unconscious structures. Or things fall apart in a terrible way. And that's actually the basis in part of the religious instinct and of, of, of the religious structures that we all necessarily inhabit, whether we know we inhabit them or not. Yes, and the cultural battles that we've been discussing, I suppose, are a quarrel over which of these values takes precedence, who yes, right. has primary access to them, who gets to determine which ones are priorities. Jordan, thank you. It's so beautiful right. to speak with you uh, again. It's been a, like, given that we've only been talking an hour, it's quite in, been quite intense. You always manage yes, to I, I drag me so. into the depths. Yeah, well, you, you're quite the questioner, and you have a remarkable tendency to be able to string together a whole variety of complicated thoughts at the same time and keep them all in the air. It's quite the gift, man. Oh, so it's you. a pleasure talking to you. Is it really? I, I love speaking with you. I'm enjoying learning from you. I'm enjoying speaking with you. Yeah, man. well, the feeling's mutual. Thank you. Uh, we'll continue yeah. our conversation about getting some time together, man. Thank you. Well, Jenny, did you like it? Yes. If you want to communicate, yeah. <laughs> con uh, contact me on Instagram, Twitter, all that. I'm going on tour in 2022. I've told you that, haven't I? Come and see me, for heaven's sake. Learn to meditate. And if you enjoyed that episode with Jordan Pearson, what should they do, Jen? <laughs> Binge the other three. Binge. Binge I was going to put the... Sam Harris, but I just think that was a bit cliche as well. Maybe Fair I'm enough. Too oh, yeah. No, it's nice to put so much effort in. And keep <laughs> checking my YouTube channel for new videos. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.